Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning to you. All right? All right. Good to hear. Go ahead, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, Paul has been working in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with this idea of two different perspectives on life. The Christian is an individual who is caught between two worlds, between this world where we have temptations and difficulties and uh, afflictions and persecutions and the future promises of God that govern our heart and our emotion and our beliefs and our faith. And we live in that tension, don't we? We live in a time and a place where we feel the pull between where we are today and where we long to be in the future, between who we want to be and who we are. And Paul has been working through this story here in his own life, really all throughout the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians, you have seen Paul experience remarkable suffering, persecution, difficulty, He's faced uh, opposition and criticism in the very church that he loves. And it seems that every single turn, Paul is faced with opposition. He's faced with difficulty and he's faced with hardship. But in chapter 4, what Jonathan showed us last week was that there's this uh, perspective uh, in terms of how Paul lives his life. That he says in the beginning of chapter 4, we're struck down but we're not destroyed. That we face discouragement, but we're not despairing. And then Paul speaks about the life of faith that he quotes from, Psalm, from the Psalms. That I believed and therefore I spoke. And we ended last week at the end of chapter 4 that I want you to, to read with and look with me because the chapter division here is terrible. Nobody asked me when they made this. But the chapter division between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is really a mess because it confuses your interpretation of what happens in chapter 5 because you miss Paul's line of reasoning that he gives you at the end of chapter 4. So look with me at the end of chapter 4 at 4.16, and this will give us a little bit of a a running jump as we get into this book, this uh, chapter. 4.16, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's one of the things that has been consistent through Paul's teaching here in this book, is that suffering is not arbitrary. It's not random. Suffering is not just the difficulties that we experience in this life, but sufferings and persecutions and afflictions actually are doing something that will affect our future eternity. Do you believe that? That the difficulties you have today in living for Christ, in walking by faith, in believing in his word, are actually going to create an eternal weight of glory in the future. So that's Paul's line of thinking. Then he closes in verse 18 like this. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As I said, the fight for a Christian is to live wisely in this era as we prepare for the next. When we read our Bible and we attend church and we sing songs and we, and we speak the Psalms together, when we remind ourselves of the truths of God's word and the gospel and the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, We are laying claim and acknowledging the fact that this world is not our home, that we live with an ambition with our eyes toward a future eternity. The reason you read your Bible as a Christian isn't because you get to heaven and there's going to be a quiz to get in. The reason you read your Bible is to shift your perspective that you might see rightly during your time on earth, that you would build your life on things that matter into your eternal, forever future. And as we've been through chapter four and really throughout this book so far, you may feel like, boy, Steve, I'm not a missionary. It doesn't seem that I'm on the razor's edge of facing persecution for my faith or affliction because of the stand that I take, that I'm not chased or persecuted or or, um, tried to be run down or killed or critiqued or any of those things. So it feels like Paul's experience feels a little far away for us. But what Paul is going to do in chapter 5 
is bring us by the hand to death's door. And he's going to give us a picture of what is on the other side. This week we uh, had the honor, I had the honor of participating in the funeral of Miss Lois Wellman. And as I spoke to many of you know Lois, uh, many of you have been involved in, uh, if you've been in this church, uh, Lois has been in this church, her, her daughter as we were talking, said I found my mom's membership card from 1946 and I started counting the decades. I said, there's a woman who was involved in this church for seven plus decades. And as we stood at her graveside and we did the service, we spent time rehearsing and remembering and reminding ourselves not only of her life and of her faithfulness and of her laugh and her story and who she was and her courage and strength as a woman of God, but she had verses that were near and dear to her. She had truths that she wanted spoken at the graveside. Because when you stand in a graveyard, it is a sobering reality. To look out on the graves and to say, does God have anything to say in this place where all mankind is headed? And what Paul's going to say in chapter 5 is you may not be in the midst of affliction right now. You may not be facing persecution. But wherever you are and whoever you are right now, you are walking by faith. You are building your life on something. Your life is headed somewhere forever and always into eternity. Because 100% of us will die. So the question we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is how do we build our life for eternity? And what Paul is going to do is show you this great, wonderful change that's going to happen. And then he's going to give you a challenge about how you ought to put that into practice. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You with me so far? Let's pray. Father, for these few minutes... As we look into your word and we talk about death, which for many of us we ignore, we don't talk about, we um, focus often on living at the expense of considering the fact that our days are numbered and one day we will die. So as we pause and pray and ask for your grace and for your spirit to give light to our eyes, we pray that you would give us a heart of wisdom that we would number our days as we consider the end of our lives, as we consider the future eternity that awaits all of us. And that today in these few moments we would order our affections and our attention, our ambitions and our obedience toward eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now you saw at the end of chapter 4 this looking word, didn't you? Look back at that last little paragraph. Verse 18, as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So the question you have as you enter into chapter 5 is where are your eyes? What do you have a tendency to look at? What do you have a tendency to think about? What do you have a tendency to focus on and to meditate on? Do you have a tendency to focus on the things that you can see? Do you order your attention and your affections by the things that you can see with your physical eyes? Because at the end of chapter 4, Paul is saying we are not looking at the visible things, the things that are seen, because the things that we see are transient. They don't last forever. They're ephemeral. They're short-lived. Rather, we look to the things that are unseen, because those things are eternal things. Now watch how he moves into chapter 5. For we know. Now Paul, you'll see through this chapter in chapter 5, that Paul will give you echoes of other places in his writing, specifically 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 8. One of those we'll look at in a little bit here. But Paul, all throughout this letter, is building upon the doctrinal convictions that he shares with this church. And this is not a hard doctrinal conviction to grasp. It's not a very difficult reality for you and I to see and to believe. 
But Paul is going to begin with doctrine. He's going to begin with things that are true. And then, as he moves throughout this chapter, he's going to order his affection, his emotional life, based upon his knowledge, based upon the revelation of God. Because, listen, when it comes to funerals, and when it comes to standing at the graves of the ones that we love, we need a word from the outside, do we not? Remember when we worked through Ecclesiastes? And we spent time in Ecclesiastes saying that Solomon's main trouble is that, or his, I'm sorry, his, um, his philosophical conviction in the book of Ecclesiastes is I want to figure out what life can give me if I only use my five senses. If I only use what I see and can feel and can touch and can achieve and can grow and can earn and can build. And Solomon kept bumping into the fact that I die. And I got to give all my money away. I'm going to die, and all the work I did is going to be forgotten. And what Paul is going to do here is bring you up to death and tell you, here's what awaits you. Here's what's on the other side. Here's a word from God who stands over the sun and is going to tell you what is on the other side. And specifically in this passage, it's a, it's a positive passage. He's going to say, here are some truths that we know await those who have faith in Christ. If you just look back up in the chapter, look at <clears throat> what Paul says in uh, 4, it was real good there, 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What's Paul's confidence? Paul's confidence is built upon the fact that Jesus is raised and that one day Jesus will raise you and I and that we will stand in the presence of Jesus. Right? So that builds Paul's confidence about what he says here. So look at what he says. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now Paul's going to use analogies, about three of them through this passage, to give you a picture of your human fleshly body in contrast with your future glorious body. And he says, if this tent is destroyed, now you can imagine having a tent. Tents in this time were made up of animal skins, and you would set them up and stretch the skins, then fold them up and put them away. Set them up, stretch the skins, fold them up, put them away. Over and over and over again. Now, if you set up your tent a certain number of times, you can imagine that one day that tent will wear out. I'm not a camper. But I can imagine that people who set up and tear down tents, one day you got to buy a new tent. You with me? Anybody outdoorsy? Amen? Okay. None of you are outdoorsy. That's great. We're just, thank you. God, Chris, thank you for that. Chris, you ever have a tent wear out? Yep, you've had a tent wear out. Here's the point. Paul says, here's your body. Here's this physical thing, the me that you are. And all through this chapter, Paul's been talking about affliction, persecution, difficulty, struck down but not destroyed. Somehow, Paul is still alive after all of this persecution and affliction that he's experiencing. But now Paul's going to take you to the point to where your breathing stops. And this body that God has given us that is fearfully and wonderfully made is not designed for eternity. It will not last forever. Amen? Now, if you're under 25, you didn't amen. Because you, right, you are at, you're the best you're ever going to look. Your skin doesn't sag. All your organs work. Your knees don't hurt. It's easy for you to get out of bed. And Paul says, if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a what? A building from God. Now you see the contrast, right? What would you rather live in? A tent that you have to set up and stretch and tear down? Or would you rather live with the HVAC? I would rather live in the HVAC. So here's Paul's point. You've got a body that will not last forever. You've got a body that's wearing out. You've got a body that you live in during your time on this planet. And the confidence Paul begins with here, in light of all of the affliction and persecution and difficulty, all of the fact that Paul says, I believed and so I spoke, and even in these afflictions that are working for me an eternal weight of glory, there is coming a day where this body will go into the ground. It will be destroyed. But we know that we have a building 
from God. A house not made with hands. That not made with hands is used in the book of Hebrews to talk about the earthly tabernacle that was made with hands compared to the eternal tabernacle that is secure in the heavens. You have a earthly body, a body that is designed to breathe air and exhale and inspire and see with rods and cones and a heart that works and brain waves and uh, electrocardiograms that see how your body works and electrical impulses that course throughout your body. But when that body fails, you can have confidence that God has now prepared something for you not made with hands, which means designed by God in eternity for your sake. A house not made with hands and it's eternal in the heaven. A temporal tent that we use during our time on earth contrasted with an eternal building made by God in the heavens for us. So there's that truth. Now, Paul doesn't just stop there and say, don't worry about it, you're going to get a new body. Paul's going to say, listen, I'm writing to this church. Church, we're all gathered here today, this morning, and we're going to acknowledge that the bodies that we live in today uh, carry with them a perspective upon life, a perspective upon the future, a perspective on how we see God, his promises, and how we walk by faith. So what Paul's going to do is give you the fact of your future resurrection, your future body, and now he's going to come back and say, well, how are we supposed to live in this body that we have, knowing that God's going to give us a future eternal building in heaven, not made with hands? How do we live? Look at verse 2. For in this tent we groan. Now, you ever heard, this isn't like hearing an old man get off a couch. Groan. That's not that. And it's explained by what he says next. It's not the groaning of our physical bodies breaking down, that you can imagine that. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 12 where we talked about the grasshopper who drags himself along and the strong men who tremble and you can't hear much anymore and the the wearing down of the body we have. Well, that's not the groaning here. It's a different picture that Paul gives. Look at what he says. For in this tent we groan, longing. Every Christian... At any age, and this is probably true of those who, are, who get older and older in the faith, they carry with them a desire in their heart. Longing is a, is, a, is a desire word. It's not just the physical breakdown that we experience, knowing one day we'll experience a new body, but that what a Christian has in his heart is a longing for the true soul's embodiment. Do you feel that? That the older you get, you recognize that not only is this world not your home, but this body is not your home. Who we are in this, this flesh will not be the real me into eternity. I need a new model. I need the 2.0 Steve. We're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now, did you see how he started here? Look at, you see, uh, for we know, look at verse one, that if the tent that is our earthly home, it's the word house, okay? We have a building from God, a house, which is the same one in the first part of the verse, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Dwelling is a different word. Dwelling is used one other time in your Bible of the, the angels in Jude who did not stay within their proper abode. They left where they ought to be. They left the place that was their home. See, the contrast that Paul is showing you is that this body is the body I will have until this body breaks down and I have a promise of a future body, a resurrected body, a restored and eternal body, free from sin and the temptations of life in this world. But that future body is actually my home. What's the difference between a house and a home? It's you inhabiting it. It's you being there. It's you arriving And that's the picture Paul is painting for you, that in this life, you will have trouble. In this life, there are afflictions and there are persecutions, and God doesn't waste them. In fact, he's going to use them for eternally glorious purposes. And not only that, he's going to give you a new body, and that new body will really be your forever home. Isn't that good news? 
Isn't that great to hear? That we don't have to cling to this body as if this is my ultimate and final identity. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now, Paul's going to use this naked and unclothed term here in this next verse. And it probably has to do with a, a belief system that was around the Corinthian church at the time called Gnosticism. Gnosticism essentially said that the physical matter, our physical bodies are bad. And the spiritual realities are good. So that it doesn't matter what I do with my physical body because my spiritual realities are more meaningful. If you remember any of the old cartoons when you were growing up, every single person who arrived at, in heaven got a halo and wings and a harp because we need more harp solos, apparently. But that was their image of heaven, right? The image of heaven was that we are kind of disembodied, floating spirits, sitting on clouds, playing harp music. That was it. That was as much as we could say. And what Paul is going to say here is that our future reality is not disembodied. Our future reality as Christians is explicitly embodied. When I step into eternity, my soul will be free of all of the corruption and taint of sin that I experience in life in a sinful world. Not only that, I will receive a body that is free of all of the taint and corruption of life in this sinful world. I will be holy and perfect. Hebrews says that we um, step into heaven, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's what awaits you. Verse 4, for while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be what? Further clothed. So the longing continues here. We long for the time when this body will be restored and new and given new life. When Jesus goes through his ministry and he heals the blind, he's giving you a taste of the future reality that awaits all of us. When he heals the man with the withered hand, he said, I am going to make this new. I'm going to make the blind man new. I'm going to make the crippled new. I am going to restore your body to what it was supposed to be. And any of us who have physical ailments, any of us who have those experiences where this body doesn't cooperate the way it should, we all have this implicit longing in our hearts that Jesus will one day fix it and make it new. You may not even be able to articulate that. But when you wrestle with a passage like this, you see that Christ has destined us for something where we will be completely restored inside and out. For while we are in this tent, we groaned being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I love this. This is such a reversal of something, when you think about, uh, you ever watch an anaconda eat? Anacondas don't chew. Anacondas squeeze the life out of the thing and then they unhitch their jaws and they swallow things whole. When When this word swallowed up, is used in other places in the New Testament, it, it's used to refer to Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour, swallow, completely dominate. Often in the Old Testament, the term Sheol, which is a term for the Old Testament word for the grave, is connected to the um, anthropomorphism, which means the, a physical reality that's attributed to the term Sheol, as having a mouth. And the picture is of Sheol swallowing everything. The grave eats everything. And Paul takes that visual image of a beast 
that unhinges his jaws and swallows everything it touches. There's nothing that can stand in the way. And he reverses it. And he says that there is so that at the end of four, what is mortal may be swallowed up by what? Life. That life would win. Do you see that? That my body is breaking down, but because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, there's coming a day when life itself will be unstoppable and I will be raised and my body will be new and my soul and spirit cleansed and I will be resurrected. Life wins. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. What a great statement, isn't it? What has God prepared for you? God does not walk with us through our 70 years and go, all of my word and my promises are really for you winning here in life, right? And a lot of times that's how we think of God. We want God to be helpful. We want God to be useful. We want God to come along and kind of fix some of our major problems so that we would be relatively more successful than our friends or our parents. We'd like to make sure that we have more money in the bank than less, and we'd sure like the creator of the universe to help us out a little bit. But in the context of the fact that our bodies are wearing out and breaking down and failing, that we experience life in this world as broken men and women, sinful individuals, Paul interjects saying, you have a new body and a new eternal reality coming, and it's God who loves you and cares for you and has prepared this very thing for you. God has a plan for you where his promises and his word don't just impact the next 50 years, they impact your eternity. Do you believe that? That into eternity future, he will be faithful to his word. Into eternity future, he will sustain your eternal, sinless state because he loves you and because he has a plan to redeem and restore. He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How do I know? Do you notice the the terms Paul has used? We groan and we long, but at the same time, God has prepared, which means God has a plan, and God has given us a pledge. Remember that term from 1 Corinthians 1? A down payment, a promise in giving us the very spirit of God to live with us and inside of us, to remind us of God and his word and his promises and his faithfulness. To remind us of the fact that my season of life does not have the last word in my life. My affliction and my difficulty does not have the last word in my life. Rather, God has the last word in my life. Rather, he's given me of his spirit as a down payment and a promise that God will be faithful to the things that he has spoken. That he gives us a subjective reality, not just an objective reality, saying, well, here's some things on a list. You should believe them. I'll see you later. I'll be back soon. But he gives us of his spirit so that we would be reminded that God is faithful to his word. He has spoken some things that pertain to me, that he has forgiven my sins. He's going to give me a new body. I'm going to live with him forever. I'm going to see him face to face. And the Spirit says, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. So that we're reminded of those things. Will you die? You will. Will God be faithful to his word? He will. How do you know? Because of his promises and because of his Spirit. Now, if it's true that our physical bodies are breaking down, which they are, and if it's true that we have an eternal home, prepared by God for us, which it is, then how ought I to live in this life? How does considering my eventual death and resurrection ought to change my Monday morning? What do you think? Should that have anything to say about the kind of husband or father or mom or sister 
or wife that I am? Should that have anything to say with the kind of Christian I am or the things that I say I believe? Should they have any sway over my emotional well-being or are we just kind of hanging on until we die? What kind of people ought we to be with these truths that Paul has rehearsed for us? Look at verse 6. So, it's another way of saying therefore. With my death and eventual resurrection in mind. Therefore, we are always of good courage. Now, if you're in chapter 5, go back up to chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> See verse four, chapter 4, verse 1? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not what? We do not lose heart. Look at 4.16. So, we do not lose heart. You with me so far? What's the point that Paul is making? Look at 5.6. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. You know, usually, it's not that fun to bring up death at a birthday party, right? Try bringing up death this week at work and see how long those conversations last. But in the context of Paul's conversation with us about death, about not only death, but the triumph of Jesus Christ through his resurrection over death, and our eventual restoration, Paul now says this should affect your inner affections. This should affect your posture on life. This should affect the way that you see the things that you are going through right now. And I would argue in context that it's only through dwelling on my eventual death and eventual resurrection as promised in God's word, as certified by Christ's resurrection, that I can only and ever hope to live wisely as a Christian during my time on earth. This is the great equalizer. This is the thing that will help you live life so that the afflictions and persecutions of life don't drag you into despair. And contrastingly, that the joys of your life you don't find ultimate fulfillment in. Because you know that they're temporary. This was Solomon's problem all through the book of Ecclesiastes. I worked, I had a great time working, I made lots of stuff, and the best I could do was take joy in my work. Because one day it's all going to go away. One day it's all going to burn. One day it's all going to rot. Second law of thermodynamics. Is that the right law? Jared. You don't... Somebody help Jared with physics. We're always of good courage. If we don't consider the fact that we will die, if we don't consider the fact that God has prepared us for eternity, if we don't consider the fact that Jesus died and raised to cleanse me from sin, then we will always live, watch this, without courage. We'll always be timid. We'll always be fearful. We'll always be uncertain of whether or not God loves us or whether or not this affliction has more to say to us than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll always, uh, we'll never know. We'll never take courageous steps of faith as a church if we're always worried about our future. We'll always be nervous and wondering, is this, am I going to destroy my life with this little bitty decision? I'm just frozen with uncertainty and fear. Paul says, no, because we know that God will raise us, because we know that our body is eternal in the heavens, because we know that it's secure, and we know that God's prepared us, and we know that God has given us, us of his spirit, therefore we're of good courage. Now look at what he says at the end of the verse. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, we see through a mirror dimly. The relationship you have with God right now through faith in his word and the gifting of his spirit is not the relationship you will have when you see him face to face. It's limited. It's a restricted relationship. There is coming a time when you will see him face to face and you will know him as he fully knows you. 
and there will be a depth and an intimacy in your relationship with Jesus Christ that you have never experienced before. And that is promised to you on the other side of death. That there will be a a measure of love and intimacy and joy and peace and well-being and comfort and restoration and joyful eternity to come for you on the other side of death because of what Jesus has done for you. We're away from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Isn't that interesting that that's where that verse is, isn't it? It's so interesting to me that Paul puts we walk by faith, not by sight, in the context of meditating upon the future promises of God to rescue, restore, and redeem and cleanse us from all sin. It's as if Paul goes to his death and to his impending eternal future and comes back and says, remember, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by the certain, true promises of God. We walk by the fact that the Spirit of God draws our hearts to the Word of God to behold the Son of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, Jonathan asked this incredibly penetrating question last week, is that how much of your counsel comes explicitly from the Word of God? And gosh, I hate those questions, don't you? You're like, gosh, I just wing it. But I think it's important for us to ask, in light of your impending death, how many decisions are you making based upon the promises of God? How many decisions are you making in your life right now where you are closing your eyes to the visible circumstances and realities that vie for the attention and the affections of your soul? And therefore, how many times are you opening your eyes to the faith-filled wonder of God, his promises, and what he has prepared for you through Jesus Christ? How are you walking in this world? I hate the fact that my emotional well-being and my emotional spiritual life so often is compromised because of the ways that I see life through my own physical eyes. This is a constant, listen, I do this for a living. And it is a constant pressure in my heart for me to attribute the circumstances that I see right now to God and to think that God is not who he says he is because of what I see with my eyes. God is not faithful because of what I see with my eyes. God is not near because of what I see with my eyes. I'm going through this affliction and this hardship and God's not paying attention. And the difficulty for a Christian, someone who knows God and believes in him and has put his faith in Jesus Christ, is to constantly wash our perspective in faith. To put on the glasses of faith to go, okay, if I die, I know that God has prepared an eternal dwelling for me. If I die tomorrow... I know that God will be faithful to his word to me. It's taking the reality of death that Jesus has defeated it and bringing it back into my Monday morning and to say, if he's faithful in the nth degree, he's faithful back here too. You with me? Right? It's an argument from greater to lesser. If he has conquered Satan, sin, death, the grave, and will one day raise me from the dead, then God can handle Tuesday morning. That's why we're always of good courage. We know we're away from the body, home from the Lord. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. He tells you it again because you needed to hear it again. And we would rather be away from the body and at home from the Lord. Amen? Wouldn't you rather be done? No more sin, no more affliction, no more difficulty, no more temptation that won't leave you alone. No more uncertainty about spiritual things, but absolute clarity about the truth of God and the angels of heaven and the spiritual warfare. To know for certain that Christ has saved you and you long to be there with him. We long to be face to face. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, now here's the therefore. Paul gave you these truths in verses 1 through 5. Then he gave you our emotional experience. How do we live in light of our impending death and resurrection? We live with courage. 
We live trusting. We live by faith. We believe Jesus when he tells us about the other side. We believe, Paul, that these afflictions and persecutions are working for us in eternal weight of glory. We bet our lives on it. We now make decisions in light of those biblical, doctrinal realities as words of God that we can build our life on. So we are men and women of courage. So... Whether we are at home or away, that's a way of saying in every place and in every time. Whether I'm at home in this body or whether I step into eternity future, we make it our aim to please him. The word aim there is Paul's way of saying uh, ambition. Not only does Paul have courage, but Paul has ambition. Courage is, I can have courage in the light of circumstances and afflictions that come against me, but Paul also has a objective. Paul has a leaning forward. He doesn't just receive persecutions and afflictions, but Paul is moving forward in his call to live for Jesus Christ. The word aim or ambition, depending on how your Bible translates this, is two words that are put together. Philo, which means love, and uh, time, which means honor. And Paul gives you this picture in verse 9 that you and I are to live for the honor and the applause of one. You are supposed to have courage because Christ has promised and prepared for you an eternal future. Now you are called to live with courage during your time on earth because you have an ambition and a desire in your heart to what? Say please him. To please him. Does the pleasure of God over your life govern your decisions? I'll ask myself, does the pleasure of God and the desire to live for his honor and his glory and his pleasure in my life control the decisions I make during my time on earth? Are we those kind of men and women? Do we have an ambition in our heart that Christ has gone to the cross for me, experienced the wrath of God on my behalf, went into the grave, dying the death that I deserve, rose from the dead, and now will give me new life for all eternity? Does that govern the ambition in our heart to please him, or are our eyes closed to the spiritual realities of faith and do we live in such a way that we live to please ourselves? He's gonna say this in chapter five next week, so buckle up. That's the question. That's the pressing question here. So Paul says all of what God has done, all of my eternal future gives me courage and an ambition to please him with my life. Now, let me ask, can you be a mom of three kids who's doing lots of invisible things for the sake of your children and live for the pleasure of God? Yes, you can. Can you be a mom of three kids and spend all of your time with an ambition to please yourself for your own spiritual comfort, for your own physical comfort? You can. Can you be a pastor and stand up in front of the people of God and preach the word of God so that you might get more accolades, more... um, Uh, reputation, more uh, applause, and not live for the pleasure of the one who has called you. You sure can. See, the issue of faithfulness has nothing to do with position. Where was Joseph? Joseph was in the prison. Joseph was accused. Joseph was sold by his brothers. Joseph was ignored for a couple of years. And then Joseph rose to prominence. And Joseph did the same thing that he had always been doing, depending on which it didn't matter what the context was, right? Because he's the same individual who had a desire to please God wherever he was. So whatever situation you are in right now, you can live a life pleasing to God. You have a certain specific set of circumstances and giftings and abilities and money-making power and influence and all of those things, and you have an opportunity right now because, watch this, of your impending death and resurrection to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus Christ. I don't care how much money you make or how much influence you have, the key question for a Christian is whether or not they're living in such a way to please the one who died for them. Now, he closes with verse 10. Four, explaining our ambition. Why do we have an ambition to please Christ? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
The appear word means to make manifest, to reveal. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, don't make a judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are in the heart. So Paul recognizes my future is secure because of Jesus Christ. My today is an opportunity to live courageously and with an ambition for his glory and honor and eyes and applause. Because one day, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a judgment for sin. This is a judgment for um, usefulness. A judgment for faithfulness. This is all over the New Testament. Let me give you a few. Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Acts 10. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Romans 14, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Christian, when Jesus talks about um, religious deeds in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about giving, praying, and fasting. And he says, when you do these things, do them in the quiet. Do go into your inner room and pray to your father. And your father who is in secret will what? You know what he says? Your father who sees in secret will reward you. The issue for us, the issue for me, listen, the longer I am a Christian, I hit like these, these speed bumps of frustration and bitterness that sometimes are like potholes. And the reason I get grumpy a lot of times in my spiritual life is that I want more recognition for my faithfulness now. You ever feel like that? You ever have those conversations with yourself or with your spouse or with your friends where you're going like, what am I doing? What am I really doing? Am I spending my time on things that, is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ? I really wish that there would be more visible recognition and applause. I really wish there'd be more validation of the faith steps that I am taking. I really wish I'd have those butterflies in my stomach and those woo feelings when I decided to walk in faith. Don't you wish there was that? No, just me. Okay, good. This is the time for me to confess things that I think about. And the problem I have is that I want judgment day today. I want to be validated in my faith steps today. I don't want to wait until judgment day. I don't want to wait for the time when all of my motives are exposed. I want my motives to be rewarded now. And Paul says we have courage and we walk by faith because our desire is to please him and one day it will be made visible and plain when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The good or evil there isn't um, moral good and evil. The good and evil there has to do with worthless and worthwhile things. So, we go back up into the passage. Christians, if we spend our time with an ambition to be uh, living for our own pleasure, our own recognition, our own applause, our own relative well-being, our own bank accounts, our own fill-in-the-blank, whatever prospective idol you may have at this time, one day it will be revealed that we are living for the wrong things. And we won't lose our salvation, but what we will lose is the eternal recognition and reward of being used faithfully by God during the time that he has given us on earth. And it's certain that no deed of faithfulness with an eye toward honoring Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for me on the cross will ever be forgotten by Jesus. That he sees every single act of faithfulness that you and I do, whether or not people see them or they don't. Whether we take courage and stand for what is right in our homes or we do not. Or whether or not we lay hold of the beauty of Jesus Christ and desire to walk in faithfulness to his name during the time that he has given us, he will not forget us. In fact, he will reward us at that day. See, this passage highlights two things. As we close here, I'm going to ask Jared and the band to come as we finish. This highlights two significant temptations that you and I will have in our Christian lives. 
The first is to live our Christian lives uncertain of the future, which is why we have 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We get a picture of the future and what is to happen so that we never have to think that our lives are okay when we walk in pure timidness. This passage gives us great encouragement to press into and persevere through all of the difficulties of what it costs us to live faithfully before Jesus Christ. Because we're absolutely certain that he hasn't forgotten us. We're absolutely certain that because he rose from the dead, he will bring me back from the dead. When I go into the ground, Christ will take me by the hand and he will raise me from the dead. Because he loves me, because he's forgiven my sins, because I've put all of my trust and my faith in the fact that he took the penalty for my sin and that death does not have the last word. But number two, when I receive that truth and that beauty of my eternal future being secure because of what God has prepared and promised to me, that it saves me from a life of indifference and moral apathy that somehow I'm saved just to lie around and take more naps and not get involved and not give and not serve and not love and not use the gift that he's given me for his glory. It gives me a life of purpose because now I can connect my life to what God is doing on earth. I can make disciples. I can encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. I can sacrifice so that Christ would be seen and the beauty of who he is would be put on display. That's what Paul has said already to the Corinthians. Death is working in us, but what? Life in you. That we are the aroma of Christ. So it saves you from living and setting your, light, your sights too low. So that you now have an opportunity to live with purpose and freedom and joy. Because Jesus died for you. Jesus was buried for you. And Jesus rose from the dead for you. Amen? Father, we thank you for the beauty of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We need this apostle to show us the way. We give you great thanks for Christ. That you have spoken to us. That you have given us a picture of our eternal future. Of you restoring this temporal body and making it into something brilliant and beautiful and eternal and lasting. Father, may we be a church that rejects timidity. That we would live courageously. That we would not live with a sense of moral indifference to your commands. Acknowledging that one day we will stand face to face before you. And give an account of the life that you called us to live. So Father, give us courage. Give us focus and purpose in the lives that we lead. In Jesus' name, amen.